0: Conservative. Constitutional. It's the Andrew Cooper Writer Show, keeping you informed on what's going on right here in Kentucky. And welcome, everybody, to another amazing day here on the Andrew Cooper Writer Show. Of course, I'm your host, Andrew Cooper Writer. Thank you all so, so much for joining us today. We've got a lot of things to talk about Jonathan Shell took a stand on natural asset companies being listed on the typical uh, stock trading platforms and, and being traded like it was stock. We'll go over what those are and how that affected it. Also as well, Chris Weiss, friend of the show, constitutional attorney, He made a recent post on social media looking at Kentucky House Bill 5, also known as the Safer Kentucky Act, talking through some of the constitutional concerns as well as legal concerns when it comes to that particular piece of legislation. Uh, Additionally, as well, we'll be covering uh, just kind of a, a good conversation about our schools that I think is kind of long overdue when we take a look at kind of, well, especially you know, yesterday, with so many kids being out of schools in so many areas, we'll, we'll kind of dig into that. But first, make sure you are sharing the show out to others. Head on over to theandrewshow.com. If you miss an episode, you can go over there to listen. You can listen to this show, 9 a.m. on WZXI, 1 o'clock everywhere else. If you want to reach out to the show, feel free to email info at theandrewshow.com. Once again, that's info at theandrewshow.com com. So I think it's pretty clear that COVID has clearly broken our local schools here in Kentucky. This use of something called these NTI days. Now, those NTI stands for non-traditional instruction days. Now, COVID didn't necessarily create this before COVID came into existence, before it was invented. Uh, and I say invented because as we know, it was uh, produced in a lab. But anyways, before COVID came out, this idea of NTI already existed. Yet, typically, like when I went to school, most likely when you went to school, well, when you had a snow day, you had a snow day. You weren't sitting there on your computer. And so these schools would work in a certain number of days, like you know, between five and 10, depending on the district and everything else that they would work in school, snow days that they could take off and then make up days, possibly teacher work days where they would instead have school that was built into the schedule. And then if it progressed too far, there's too many snow days. You would just lose a few days off of your summer. You would get out of school a little bit later. That used to be how it was done. And then came NTI which stands for non-traditional instruction, as I said before. And once they were able to get a computer in every single public school kid's hands, the use of NTI instead of snow days has become more pervasive. In fact, practically all last week almost, Fayette County Schools was out of session. And then after an entire weekend, they decided to go ahead and cancel schools again. Kind of crazy. Now, I know there's some places, such as Gaird County, for an example, some parts of Jesmond County, where perhaps the roads hadn't been cleared, road crews hadn't gotten out to them, you really haven't gotten a chance to salt them, so on and so forth. But if for the amount of snow and ice and everything else that we got over the course of last week and then the weekend, if they weren't able to get it cleared in time enough for school Monday, we would have greater issues. But rather than saying, and and I believe in a normal circumstance, they would have just went ahead and had schools in most of these districts. But now, because you have NTI, you have different options available to you, they decide, hey, we're going to peddle this onto the kids. But it's this mindset that somehow being on the computer, that somehow that is equal or exactly the same as a teacher being there to teach the kids. It's like we learn nothing. It's like we didn't learn that it's preferable to have the kids in the classroom learning instead of trying to learn over the course of a laptop. In fact, the learning loss that we've seen in our public schools here in Kentucky has knocked out, according to recent studies, nearly a quarter century, 25 years worth of growth that we've seen in our uh, achievement, child achievement. Now, I say growth in child achievement because it actually has been pretty small. I mean, when you start looking at what our schools have accomplished and done, especially compared to spending, you start to see a pretty disgusting picture. And it's worth talking about as we've seen more of these public schools getting upset at our state legislature because, well, they just didn't give them enough money. They didn't give them those 11% across the board unconstitutional teacher raises. If you listen to yesterday's show, you'll know what I meant by unconstitutional because, well, we have to have equitable funding in the state. We can't just hand out percentage-based raises when districts are the ones that are setting what teachers' salaries are. No, 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 can't do that. But, you know, typical Democrats to want you to go ahead and do something unconstitutional anyways. But no, instead, we have people like Bashir still coming out here, pushing and peddling this, this constant grasp for universal pre-K as if it will be what ends up delivering us from the learning loss we find ourselves in. Let's go ahead and take a listen. You know, Bashir posted this onto his Twitter, this video here. Uh, let's take a listen to what he had to say about universal pre-K and why he thinks it's so important. You know, there's they have a significant amount of money in there for child care. Uh, we put a significant amount of money in there for child care. It's not going to work without universal pre-K. We're going to be in the same spot we were three months ago, six months ago, and nine months ago. We're also really going to have to figure out how to make it work. Because at least the requests right now are for replacement of federal dollars, and for help in 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 salaries. Well, these are also private sector businesses, and we don't know the the profit margin. So the only way we make a real headway into childcare is universal pre-K, which takes care of 25% of it. You know, every four-year-old, and once they're five, they go into. To kindergarten. So that was Bashir talking there about universal pre-K and how the legislature, big mean old legislators, just aren't doing enough in order to get this these kids taken care of. Because obviously we live in a world where the government has to be the ones to take care of the kids. Remember, I mentioned that our state legislature is spending $1.5 million to match a federal grant of $1.5 million to get $40 a month on an EBT card to darn near every single case through 12 kid in the entire state because for some reason it's an extension of the federal food program you know they claim that uh, these kids are only getting fed at school and so therefore we need to extend that program out nobody ever bothers to make the obvious and clear point that if the children are not getting fed at home and the parents clearly, I mean, they can qualify for SNAP for food stamps. If they're not, the food stamps aren't being used for the kids at home, how is giving them $40 more a month in food stamps going to solve the problem? No, of course it won't. Just like we have people pulling up To schools driving Porsches, but their kids getting free breakfasts and lunches from the schools because of the way the federal program is structured. And they, too, will also be receiving a $40 EBT card. I mean, just think about that. Parents making hundreds of thousands of dollars a year, their kids getting food stamps cards in the mail, teaching them early that you need to be reliant upon the government to take care of you. Self-accountability and daddy government is always going to be there for you. That's what they're trying to teach them early. And as these claims, the schools have said, we need to do more. We need to get them earlier. We've seen this growth over the last decades. Well, has that resulted in actual better results? We're going to take a, a look at that. After this short break, we're going to see, you know, as the, as these districts, if you remember yesterday, I was talking about Nima Brewer, Teachers Union Representative, talking about how kids need only 20 minutes for lunch. We can't give them 30 minutes for lunch because schools have to do so much because it isn't like when you were a kid. Well, let's take a look at what school was like when you were a kid, what achievement was, and compare that to what's going on now. See if all this money we're spending and all these claims of mental health and belonging being needed, this de push in our K-12 schools. Let's see if that's resulting in anything. We'll take a look at the stats after this short break. You're listening to The Andrew Cooperwriter Show, your source for Kentucky politics from a conservative perspective. If you want to reach out to the show, feel free to email info at theandrewshow.com. You are back with The Andrew Cooperwriter Show. For the break, we are talking about Bashir's push for Universal Pre-K, how he thinks he'll be the answer to schooling, mentioning that yesterday school representatives claimed that, well, you know, 20 minutes for lunch is all they can afford to do because schools have to do too much. They got too much going on, too much on their plate. They got to fill in the gap in too many areas. And so often we hear that nowadays uh, coming out of our school leaders, our school districts, that their, their explanation for why they have so much administrative blow, why even adjusted for inflation, they're spending so, so much more than they used to, to, even just a few decades ago, why they need to do that. Well, what we hear from them is that it's needed in order to get these kids. We have to fill in the meals and be the parents for these kids, so on and so forth. So we have to continue to spend this money. And as school has lost sight, as they've had to put in this diversity, equity, and inclusion initiatives and mental health initiatives, and and as we've seen the federal government giving grants for mental health providers and our state government even funding those projects, we see line items for millions of dollars putting aside for that in our state budget to put these mental health professionals in K through 12 public schools, we asked the question, is it working? What is the net result? Well, let's first talk about uh, what the point is behind sending kids to school in the first place. Because last I checked, you send your kid to school in order for them to learn to do math and reading and so on and so forth. I don't believe, and I could be mistaken, I could be mistaken, But I don't believe you send them to school to see a shrink. If you wanted them to see a shrink, well, you would uh, send them to see a shrink, right? If you sent them to school to be parented, well, you would get a nanny or adopt your kids out, so on and so forth. No, you're sending them to school to learn how to read and write. So with all that spinning in mind, let's take a look here at what the achievement results have been. And this from uh, NAEP. It's the uh, National Association of Educators uh, looking at their statistics here on achievement, adjusted test scores, so on and so forth. So when we look at 1971, this is for reading achievement. At the age of nine, we see that they got uh, the average reading achievement score was 208 in 1971. It was going along, progressing pretty well. And uh, it was it was gaining some ground, losing some ground. And then in '04, that 208, well, that shot right up, massive amount to 219, 219. And then in 2020, well, that uh, that we've gotten that massive reading achievement at age nine of 220. That's their average reading achievement score, 220. And then COVID hits, and they are back down to about 215, 210. Literally, the exact same result, the exact same reading scores and achievement that nine-year-olds in our public schools were getting in 1975. In 1975, where we spent even adjusted for inflation significantly less per student, where you didn't have a mental health professional around every single corner in the darn school, when you didn't have parents having to watch what their kids are saying to the guidance counselor, when you didn't have all this inclusiveness BS back when Fayette County Public Schools didn't hang trans flags at the entrance to their locations in elementary schools, back when JCPC... Uh, Jefferson County Public Schools Could get kids to actually To school in the first place Something they struggle with Now back then We are getting the same exact results And reading at age 9 As what we're getting now And when you fast forward to age 13 You don't see much of a difference In 71 their achievement was uh, Average score is 255 When you advance forward to age uh, uh, 13 When you get to 2020 You, you, you get that massive increase of 260, which by the way is the same score they had in 1992 and pretty much held until 08 when it shot up, uh, uh, started shooting up to that massive 263 average score, enough to be significantly different. But then it shot back down to 260, and now after COVID, it's at the exact same score, 255, it was in 1971. That's for Reading And you say, Andrew, well, that's reading. Perhaps maybe with all this money we've been spending, maybe we haven't been teaching kids to read. Maybe it's been going to math. Well, you, my friend, would be mistaken. So when we look at our math assessment scores, in 1973, Uh, At the age of nine, they're at 219. Then in 2020, you see they'd worked all their way up, progressing evenly to 241. That massive improvement, the same exact score, by the way, that they had in 2004, 16 years earlier. But they're at 241 now. Well, then COVID hits. And guess what? They're back down to around 220, almost exactly the same as they were in 1973. That's at age nine. When you move to age 13 and their math achievement scores, it's the same story. In fact, in 2012, at the age of 13, they were at 285. Now they're down to 280 which is the lowest score in in 2020, they're down to 280 achievement score, the lowest math achievement score in the 2000s. It shot even lower after that, all the way down to the lowest scores since the 1980s, all that spending, all that money. And what do you get your net result? Well, your educational achievement has uh, stayed the same. You say, well, Andrew, they've been spending that money. As you said earlier, they weren't spending it to teach kids to read or write or do math. No, they were doing it on their mental health to take care of them. So then if all that money was being spent on mental health assistance for these kids that suddenly now are dealing with things that we as children never dealt with that demand us spending our money on them. Well, then surely you'd see things like child suicide rate, incarceration rate, mental health issues, you know, this medicalizing of the human condition. You'd see those dropping lower and lower. And if you thought that was the case, guess what? You would be mistaken. Child suicide rate has risen actually 18% since 2011. Now, I graduated high school uh, in the late Uh, 2008 2009 is when I graduated high school and I know for some of you listening you're like man he's a youngster but you know bear with me um but I graduated high school in 2008 2009 I don't remember having a DEI class I don't remember a belonging class I I don't remember any of that Uh, We didn't have that. I I never once went to my guidance counselor that cared about what my mental health rates were. But for some reason, we... And, and my generation of going to high school without any of those concerns living in this modern time, too, because people say, well, you know, the suicide rates has risen. These mental health issues have risen because social media has dragged them down. Look, Facebook and MySpace and all of that existed while I was in high school is just really getting going. But an 18 percent increase since 2011. So clearly all this spending we're doing on mental health is only resulting in more of our kids taking themselves out. In fact, when you look at incarceration rates, another indicator of how well-adjusted these kids are going, you see in 1971, the incarceration rate was 161 per 100,000 people, and now incarceration rate in 2023 has risen to 505 people per 100,000 incarcerated. So an almost three to four times growth as this focus on belonging. An achievement, supposedly, has kicked in. No longer do they just teach them math or reading. No, they feel they have to be the parent. But that is the point. They fail. They can't be the parent. They suck at it. That's why they're not achieving. That's why the schools can't accomplish anything. So they're spending our money. We're getting worse results on teaching. They Anytime apparently the roads are oh, just even slightly cold, they're going to go ahead and send them home to go learn on a computer then they're going to sit there and constantly pushing into them that, well, you need to care about race and belonging. And what's your gender? Do you know what your sexuality is? How do you identify? Are you cis Whatever that means. And as these kids worry about this more, they are getting sicker in the head. We are literally killing them and destroying their lives with this kind of garbage and filling them full of it. But despite that, we have people like Bashir, we have the liberals in the state continuing to push it forward, and the Republicans are buying into it. The Republicans aren't saying, look, mental health treatment doesn't belong at our K-12 education. Look, our teachers can't be parents. Look, maybe it's the responsibility of a parent to make sure their child is fed and not that of the government. Look, we can't continue down this road. It isn't working. Government cannot replace a parent. Government cannot replace community. But to say that would mean you had to do the hard thing of saying, well, I can't solve all of your problems. That's something that can be pretty difficult for some people to accept. Natural asset Companies, natural asset companies, uh, a recent buzzword going around. Jonathan Shell, when he was running for agriculture commissioner in Kentucky, made a promise to take a stand against Joe Biden and stop his agenda. Well, we've gotten a good look at Jonathan Shell following through on that. What he means. Uh, after this short break, we'll go over what these natural asset companies are and what Jonathan Shell, Agriculture Commissioner in Kentucky, did to take a stand against them and why we should be applauding that move as this was moving to destroy that very important farmland all across america and right here in kentucky you're listening to the andrew cooper show your source for kentucky politics want to reach out to the show feel free to email info at theandrewshow.com once again that's info at theandrewshow.com you are back with the andrew cooper show your source for kentucky politics Maybe you've looked around recently and realized, well, hmm, there's not really too many farms getting started in Kentucky. There's not too many people breaking into the business, and a big part of the reason why has to do with just the sheer cost to get into farming. A real big problem for, of course, one, a country that needs to feed itself, and of Two, of course, for a state that has relied on farming jobs for almost all of its history to be a heavy, if not main, source of income for the state. Could be a big, big issue. You need farms. We just need them. You, You gotta eat, right? And a big part of the reason why deals with the cost of land. In fact, in 1998 in Kentucky, the average price per acre of farmland was $1,620. And today, that same acre of land, according to AcreTrader, is $5,450 an acre. Now, adjusted for inflation, that 1998 price per acre of $1,620 should have only been about $3,000 per acre, a price that we surpassed in 2009 here in Kentucky. So the massive inflation in cost of land is pricing any type of new farmer well out of the market. This problem becomes, well, quite the issue when you're considering about what to do for the future of Kentucky. Now, I spent a lot of time talking with Jonathan Schell during the primary in 2023. We saw each other several times a week. And one of the things we often talked about was the fact that you don't see young people breaking into the farming uh, industry, that it's a dying industry. And if we don't see new businesses starting up in that, well, we would certainly not see a super great future. For that type of uh, business. And Jonathan Shell agreed. He, he agreed completely. And now one of his taglines he ran on was, save Kentucky, stop Biden. Now the reason why I bring this up is, you know, he, he really has taken... That saying that so many people called just a a dumb saying, what's that even mean? And with his most recent move really showed exactly the kind of thing that we can expect from somebody who says that they want to save Kentucky from Biden, somebody who cares about the future of farming in Kentucky. And I'm talking, of course, about his stand he took with nine other agriculture commissioners in nine other states against natural asset companies, natural asset companies. Uh, is is this idea? So typically, when you're trading a company on the stock market, you have like a charter. You have uh, certain responsibilities to the shareholders, and one of those includes when you're a public company trading on the stock market, uh, and you're licensed by the SEC to go ahead and trade on the stock market you have things like uh, providing value to your stockholders, making the best financial decisions you can, so on and so forth in order to manage what people are investing in. You can't just take their money and do whatever. Well, these natural asset companies that submitted a request, Biden administration submitted a request to the uh, SEC to allow these natural asset companies to trade on the market. Now, these companies wouldn't be asked to go ahead and do anything with the land. They don't need to make a profit. They don't need to farm the land, nothing like that. Their job would be to go around and buy up land and just simply hold on to it in order to save the planet from global warming or something, basically to ecologically improve the land. Now you say, Andrew, why would anybody spend money on that? Why would anybody want to park money there? Well, just understand that the value of something on the market is that of which the market prescribes to it. If you can create an artificial reason to purchase that, or if it's just a good place to park your money, people will leave their money there, whether it has real value or not. For an example, Take, take NFTs, right? Non-fungible tokens. Now, some of you don't know a thing about what this is, but basically this was a digital image, a digital currency that doesn't really have any value outside of what other people assign to it. Think of like modern art. Think of art at all. Right, Art only has the value it has because it's traded, quote unquote, on the market and people within a circle have agreed upon what value it has. And anybody who follows any kind of the art conspiracies (laughs) knows that one of the common things they talk about is using art in order to launder money as a good place to park your dollar bills. Because when you have all the money in the world and you want to park it somewhere or you need to launder it somewhere or you need a way to pay for things without actually showing the transaction, well, that is a uh, item that can exchange hands and whatever value you decide to sell it for is the value you decide to sell it for. I mean, we've all seen Hunter Biden's art dealings at the federal level, right? Well much the same way and and, and you know natural asset companies is, is not anything new that doesn't actually provide value or really exist just something they all agree uh, all these traders agree on that they agree yeah okay that's somewhere where we want to park our money for an example anybody who has prime can see the documentary the China hustle where it goes over how these there's tons of Chinese companies that get listed on our stock market that literally don't do anything they have doctored books made up books they don't actually produce anything and everybody buying their stock knows it, but because it's a reliable place to park your money because the market has decided that that's a good idea, well, that's what people do. they'll buy that up. So in much the same way, these natural asset companies would have been a place where uh, perhaps your tax incentivized or other things to go ahead and place your dollar bills there to uh, uh, hold these assets, quote unquote, uh, in order that don't do anything. This land wouldn't produce a profit. It wouldn't make uh, uh, you know food. It wouldn't be a place to raise cattle. Cow- it would be nothing other than land that literally they're just holding on to. Now, another reason why somebody might be willing to buy up something like that would be, well, if they themselves trade in commodities, if you're trading for an example in hemp or uh, maybe soybeans or a commodity like that, an artificial shortening or artificial uh, uh, lowering of the supply of that item because of you owning all this land in these natural asset companies would cause your value on that commodity, your soybean to go ahead and go up to as well. So that's another reason why people would buy into these kinds of things. But here's, here's the end result is you could see companies coming in, buying up land in Kentucky and then listing that onto the stock market. And as there becomes this mad rush in to go ahead and purchase up that land on the stock market, this company now has way more money than everybody else on the market. And suddenly now you're trying to already farm land that is, has outstripped inflation by almost twice as much. Since 1998, well, now you're competing against the entire world to buy farmland in Kentucky and you're trying to buy land to do something with. They're just buying land to hold on to it in order to provide a place for these people to park their cash. It becomes quite the quite the problem. But the other thing you could see happening with this is if you look at something like California, where they're right now talking about a wealth tax, taxing you based upon the value of the assets you hold, whether they're liquid or not. So you could see somewhere like California saying, we'll tax you on all your other stocks, but if you park your money here in these natural asset companies, we aren't going to tax you for putting your dollars there. So now California is incentivizing people to purchase land in Kentucky and do nothing with it, causing your farmland to go up massively in cost of price, pricing people out even more so than already of beginning into the market, getting into the industry of farming and... Obviously starting to destroy the Kentucky economy because, of course, that creates jobs. Farming land creates jobs. But if you're not farming the land, you're just holding on to it. Well, that would kill jobs in Kentucky. So good on Jonathan Shell for joining with these. Apparently, Biden has withdrawn his request to the SEC for this ruling, uh, in large part due to these 10 agriculture commissioners joining together to take a stand against Biden. That tells you exactly what that looks like. Or coming up on a break after this, we're gonna talk about uh House Bill 5, the Safer Kentucky Act. We have some commentary on that coming from a friend of the show, Chris Weiss. We'll have that after this. A short break. You're listening to the Andrew Cooper Show. And you are back with the Andrew Cooper Show, your source for Kentucky politics. Safer Kentucky Act. That's what it was called when it was first released. It's now become House Bill 5, a sweeping change to Kentucky's uh, criminal laws in order to enhance charging, in order to create mandatory sentencing requirements, in order to take a stab at dealing with some of the issues we see going on in certainly our major cities like Louisville, but also all around the state, such as homelessness and other uh, just uh, carjackings, other destructive things. Well, friend of the show and constitutional attorney Chris East. he recently made a post on his social media going through house bill five talking about some of his concerns from the bill when you read through it now one of them is the criminalization of sleeping in your car so uh, obviously this bill is taking an own om- an, an aim at homelessness in order to address people that are street camping because of course it isn't it isn't you know people say oh i gotta love everyone why are you trying to criminalize homelessness so on and so forth it's not about as much criminalizing homelessness as it is how is it compassion how is it okay for two things not just for society but for the person to leave them on the street and not incentivize through carrot and stick measures them getting off the street and becoming a productive member of society not only is it good for society as you're protecting public and private property so it can still be used and not covered in human feces for an example but also you're helping that individual get back on track get back out into the world so they are able to take care of themselves and not leave a life where they're running the risk of dying every night or dying in the cold or so on and so forth things that you and me probably aren't particularly concerned about so they take an aim at street camping in this house bill five safer kentucky i can in doing so, apparently, the in this bill, if it was to pass as is, would make sleeping in your car illegal on public or private property. Now there's a few issues here. First off, um, it pairs. it doesn't have a particular rider for anything like rest stops or gas stations. That's of certainly note as you have truckers and truck drivers that sleep in their cabs all the time. And, and, and Chris brought this up and he's right. And, and I've done this before too, certainly as a younger man, but, um, even recently, a few years ago, driving down to Florida, it's a 14 hour drive. Um, At the time, I owned a manual car. My wife couldn't drive a manual, so I had to drive it all myself, and I started getting tired. So I pulled over to a local Walmart, and I grabbed a few hours of shut-eye before headed down the road. Safe and good thing to do. But under this bill, that would now become illegal. That certainly is of big concern and needs to be addressed the other thing chris brings up is mandatory prison time for running for the police now obviously as i say that a lot of you say look if you run from the cops you should go to prison and generally i agree with you generally i agree with you and and let me i mean tell you this is taking the aim at situations like what we saw in lexington where a woman tries to stab a man <laughs> uh run over police officers with her car get shot because she's doing such a violent risk she's she's a risk to the life of the officers and firefighters that arrived at the scene after she wrecked her car into her apartment while she's trying to run over a guy and then led police on an hour and a half police chase through multiple counties and what did she get well what she got was simply five years probation and a fine. Well, under this law, she'd be required to go to jail for running from the police. The correct thing to do. Clearly crazy person. But at the same time, and Chris brings this up, the problem is is this is wrapping up what could be just young, dumb kids running from the cops because they're scared of getting in trouble for something stupid and silly like, I don't know, um, you know, maybe maybe you're you're trespassing, you're skateboarding. Let's use a simple example. You're skateboarding uh, on private property. And the police show up, so you go ahead and take off running because you're a dumb kid instead of just taking the slap on the wrist and moving on with your life. So you take off running. Well, under this law, that dumb kid would now be required to serve jail time. Now, for all of us out there, I'm sure, I have don't think... I've ever run from the police, but I'm sure we should all agree that some dumb kid uh, running from the cops because they're just afraid more so of their parents than they are the police getting in trouble, because that was one thing I know when I was younger, I was more afraid of my mom getting mad at me than I would ever have been of the police. And so with that in mind, with that thought process in mind, do you really want these young, dumb kids to end up being mandatorily sent to prison, to jail, because they got afraid and ran from the police? That's probably not exactly what you're looking for. That's probably not your point. The other thing he brings up is nonprofit bail groups. The bill completely outlaws them rather than regulating them. Chris believes it's a violation of First Amendment rights to outlaw them completely, so the bill should be amended to regulate them. Otherwise, the entire portion goes away. It's not so much that he's saying that he agrees with these bail groups these groups that are nonprofits that raise money in order to pay people's bails it's not that he agrees with them he's simply stating that this is a first amendment concern and by ins- outlawing them completely instead of trying to sit down and regulate them the entire provision can get overturned because you can't outlaw them completely but maybe you could regulate them and that should be what you're trying to do and then finally, he brings up some of the Second Amendment issues, and this is directly from the bill now. It says, notwithstanding any other provisions of this chapter or Section 32 of this act, a person shall not be eligible for probation, parole, conditional discharge, conditional release, or any other form of release prior to completion of his or her sentence if, in the commission of the offense, he or she used a firearm which was in possession of Possessed in violation of state law, including firearms which are stolen, defaced, or loaded with restricted ammunition. So basically they're saying that you're not eligible for probation, parole, conditional discharge, or conditional release if you used a gun you shouldn't have had. Uh, While carrying out the crime. Now, if you're just saying a person who's illegally possessing a firearm, uh, such as a, a stolen firearm, this is what Chris says. If you're talking about somebody who just has a stolen firearm or is a felon with a firearm, okay, that's one thing we can have that conversation. But instead, they're talking about somebody who just illegally is possessing a firearm. Well, you can illegally be possessing a firearm if it doesn't have under state statute. And, and Chris points this out that this is probably violating the Second Amendment that you're, you have a defaced firearm if it doesn't have a serial number on it. Well, serial numbers weren't even required on firearms until 1968. And also the provision says if you cover up the serial numbers, so let's say you decide you're going to get fancy with the rattle can and paint your own uh, uh, um, design on your gun, or you're going to, I don't know, let's say uh, uh, vinyl wrap your firearm, but you happen to cover the the serial number in the process. And then you get convicted of committing a crime with that gun and and committing the crime with the gun could be simply as, you know, you were defending yourself in a situation. They say, ah, eh, maybe you shouldn't have been doing that. And they give you, um, some, uh, some time in jail, maybe not the same as, as full on murder. Well, according to this, you would be uneligible for parole or probation, uh, if you were even slightly covering that serial number, even though you were legally possessing the firearm otherwise. And it's not as much about whether or not you agree or disagree with that with people having those guns. And I know we're talking about people breaking the law and I, I get you throw them in prison, throw away the key. But Chris's point is that this is violating potentially the Second Amendment and that could have a lot of issues within the law but the overall point though of the entire thing is you're you're trying to address a problem by taking away prosecutorial discretion, taking away judges' discretion, sentencing discretion. You would like to think that judges, especially elected judges, would be representing what's best for society and the people. But the problem is we're seeing these liberal judges and prosecutors that are using discretion in a way to let clearly violent and horrible lawbreakers get away with sometimes not even going to jail in the first place. And so to address that, you're trying to pass mandatory sentencing. What you should be doing instead is impeaching these people. That should be what you're doing. Stop trying to make laws that they're going to try to find a way to loophole out of anyways, in order to get around and forcing them on the people that they should be. And instead, you're going to end up catching up otherwise well-intentioned, maybe people who make slip ups and mistakes, you're going to end up catching them up in something that you put in place that normally a judge would discretionarily say, you know what, that person really probably shouldn't be full on thrown in prison for that. Well, now you're forcing them to do that because you can't trust other judges to not abuse that. Start impeaching people, please. Instead of passing more laws that they're going to go around, hold some people accountable. Well, y'all, that's what we have time for today on the Andrew Cooperator Show. I thank you all so, so much for joining me. We'll be back here tomorrow, 9 a.m. WZXI, 1 o'clock everywhere else. Have a great rest of your day.